Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Dispatch, episode 36. I'm joined by Dr. Josh Bloom, who I do not get to have on the show enough. Josh, how are you today? It's so nice to hear your voice again. Well, I just got let out of a Russian prison, so uh, I was um, unable to do my podcasts, which was worse than the prison itself. That's how much I missed you, Cameron. Oh, shucks, Josh. How was the food? Was it good? Did, did uh, Comrade Putin feed you well? Uh, it was uh, a whole lot different than Arby's. <laughs> All right. Well, there you have it. Russian prison food tastes like Arby's, who has right. the meats. We won't be getting any funding from them or, <laughs> or anyone else, really. So uh, what's the difference? <laughs> Well, you know, you just exposed our big beef funding, Josh. So, uh, big beef. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, it's good to have everybody with us again. We've got two articles to discuss this week. Both are, uh, are authored by Josh. So the first one is actually an op-ed that you co-authored for USA, USA Today. It's called, Bureaucrats Are Telling Your Doctor How to Treat Pain and Patients Suffer Needlessly. And then we've also got uh, a rather entertaining piece that you wrote about uh, CVS putting homeopathic remedies in quotes on the same shelf as actual pain relievers. <laughs> so they're both very, very interesting. Josh, let's let's start with the first one, which is uh, the more serious and and uh, more tragic one, even. And and that is uh, we have bureaucrats in Washington telling doctors what to prescribe and what not to prescribe. So what's going on? Well, we're about a decade into this. Uh, I first noticed. And it was just dumb luck, but um, I, I first wrote about um, moving Vicodin, which was Schedule 2 at the time, so you could get refills and your doctor didn't have to do somersaults to, uh, you know, get your bottle of pills. Uh, I'm sorry, it was, it was Schedule 3, that's less. Um, Schedule 2 is the stronger drugs. Anyhow, I got moved from Schedule 3 to Schedule 2. I think it was around 2013. And I wrote an op-ed in the New York Post saying that, well, this is not good because if you're, uh, you know, you got a impacted wisdom tooth over the weekend or something like that and your doctor can't, call on a prescription to get you relief, then you're stuck at the emergency room, which is not an especially wonderful place to go for pain or anything else. So I just kind of happened to hit on something there, and I let it go until about 2016 when the CDC re, um, released a report they call it guidance about opioid prescription. It's, it's nothing of the sort. It's, it turned into um, state laws and mandates and inflexible policies. And at that point, I'm thinking, well, this is bad because, first of all, um, I'll be kind and just call the, the CDC a bunch of idiots. Um, you know, based on their recent performance, and I'm not just talking COVID, I'm talking about leaving 
smallpox lying around in a box in a closet and just a whole bunch of terrible, um, potentially dangerous mistakes that they were making uh, under Tom Frieden back in the early 2010s. And of course, now they, they've proven it even more. Oh, I found interesting that the C CDC, which might not even know how to open a prescription bottle, is all of a sudden weighing in on what suggested doses for different drugs that doctors should be prescribing. Uh, of course, the suggestions, which were uh, based on absolutely nothing, we can talk about that a little later if you want, they started to become state laws very quickly. And now there are about 40 states that have restrictions on opioid prescribing. Uh, and yeah, the result is, well, there are two results. One is that you and I both know that there are tens of millions of pain patients who have been uh, vol involuntarily tapered from their medicine. Sometimes they've been on a decade or two and we're doing just fine. And of course now, uh, if you can't, you know, there's such pressure on doctors and hospitals not to prescribe opioids because they're getting on a DEA list and being prosecuted if, if the DEA deems that they're writing too many prescriptions or too high a volume, as if the DEA uh, should be deciding what the right number of prescriptions and dose is. So you, you've got the DEA and the CDC, maybe the two worst uh, agencies to be inserted between the patient and the doctor. And the results have been an absolute disaster, not just for pain patients, but it's, you know, there is irrefutable evidence now that uh, as pain prescriptions have been cut and they're, they're down to below 2010 level, I think, the um, number of opioid deaths go up, of course, because of course people switch over to fentanyl and we all know about that now. So uh, this policy has hurt users and abusers and doctors because I know a whole bunch of them that are um, have lost their license or going to jail or they're being they're on trial now, um, and it's it, it's really um, I don't know it's it's, it's it's like Stalinist Russia where the government is dictating to doctors how much of a pain medicine they can prescribe. Like, where, when has that ever happened in the history of the United States before? Like, never. It's, uh, it's really tragic, Josh. And I remember the first time I spoke to you about this years ago now, you, you pointed out that this could affect anybody. And I believe you said you could go out this afternoon to get in a car accident and crush both your knees 
and live the rest of your life in excruciating pain because your doctors are afraid to give you the medicine that that can control the pain. And I it just it scared the hell out of me because it really can affect anybody. The the example of people, you know, like serious car car accidents or or whatever, you know, even like even something that's inoperable, you have people that could really benefit from pain control and they're not getting it. I mean, I think at one point you told me people are actually committing suicide because their choice is, you know, uh, illicit street drugs uh, or they, you know, they, they end their life because they're in so much pain. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Well, I don't have a, I, I'm not aware of um, a suicide opioid publication yet. There will be one at some point. All I can tell you is from firsthand experience, hardly a month goes by when I don't get an email from somebody who's just venting that they're going to commit suicide or sometimes asking me how, the best way to do it, which, of course, I can't say, even though I know. So that's anecdotal, but uh, there are uh, uh, patient advocacy groups all over the country that are keeping track of these in yeah, in a in an informal sort of way. All I can tell you is that um, I hear this more and more. Plus, I don't see how it couldn't be. Because if you're living off a high dose of oxycodone because of, oh, let's say, you know, some spinal nerve issues or any number of diseases or accidents that will put you in permanent pain and you're doing okay and they yank those drugs away from you, these, a lot of these people can't get out of bed anymore and they're just facing one, af one hour after another after another of unrelenting 10 out of 10 pain. So, yes, there are definitely suicides. I don't have... Uh, scientific quality data on them. Well, I don't think you have to have that. We will at some point, as you said, but I mean, if it's bad enough that strangers are emailing you and asking you for tips, <laughs> you know, on how to shovel off this mortal coil, I mean, that's horrible, right? If, right, if the idea is ostensibly the idea behind these regulations is we're trying to protect public health and keep people from addiction and ruining their lives. And, you know, it seems to me that if they're in so much pain that they want to die, <laughs> you know, maybe we've, uh, we've gone the wrong direction here. You know what I'm saying? I think you're operating under the wrong assumption though. Um, uh, the longer I'm in this game, the more I believe that this uh, witch hunt against pain medications is driven by money and uh, public health, they could possibly care less. So, you know, that's a pretty strong statement, but, you know, these things I know, and I will repeat them. Um, there's a group called the Physicians for Responsible uh, Opioid Prescribing, and they hate me like you know, I can't even describe a word. And 
I'm after them all the time with good reason because it's it's a self-appointed group of a- academic experts, most of whom haven't seen a patient unless they happen to walk by one on the street in, in decades. So th- these aren't even people that know the damn thing about drugs. And um, their game is to write and lecture about the evils of opioids, how they don't work, how about th- how they started the, uh, the, the overdose death crisis, and how they're still responsible for it, which is utter nonsense. And then they become expert witnesses, where they earn between $500 and $1,000 an hour testifying against uh, manufacturers, distributors, pharmacies, all the deep pockets. And they extort money from these companies by using a bunch of bag lawyers. So uh, I can't say that's the entire story behind this, but you have to remember that, well, you don't remember because you don't know in the first place, that the working group that came up with the 2016 guidelines, which is basically, you know, the, the devil, you know, the devil in the room, uh, this, this group was, uh, it was filled with prop people. Uh, that's physicians for responsible opioid prescribing. So a question is, uh, who decided to form this committee? And uh, I got a pretty good idea of that. And how is it overloaded with anti-opioid people so that their recommendation to the CDC, which the FDA rejected, by the way, and was ignored, uh, had uh, decided anti-opioid bent to it. So that may not be the entire story, but that is certainly correct. And And this I can document Uh, with my eyes closed. Well, as I said, it's truly tragic and I can only hope that at some point we ride our ship on this because there's a lot of people suffering. So I I have no doubt you'll keep writing about this and uh, screaming at people who put these policies in place until something changes. So maybe there's a, a little bit of encouragement in that. I don't see much yet, but, um, uh, at some point, this is all going to come out, and I'm hoping people go to jail for what they did. I'm not going to name names, but maybe I'll visit. <laughs> Bring up some Tylenol? <laughs> okay, okay, enough of that foolishness, my inappropriate jokes aside. Um, you know, I just reread this story, Josh, in prep for our discussion and it really made me angry, especially as a dad with a, with a young child. The fact that people are selling uh, so-called, you know, uh, homeopathic remedies and pain relievers that are targeted to parents to give it to their children that don't actually do anything, and in fact, don't even contain active ingredients. 
So, so tell us about this story and start, start with the lawsuits that were filed against, uh, against CVS. That's an important point people should be aware of. Well, public, the public advocacy group has been going after uh, Walmart and CVS for selling, um, let's call it a homeopathic remedy, even though it isn't a remedy, let's say for pain, right next to kids' ibuprofen. As you know, and ob it's obvious what they're after. Uh, all over the shelves, you see the CVS brand and then the, the name brand right next to it. Well, they are equivalent. But then when you start place, placing something that has nothing in it next to a real medicine, that's, that's a, now you're entering uh, sleeves world in, in, uh, in a very big way. Because uh, the first thing, you want to put your generic Tylenol next to regular Tylenol, no harm. It's just, in fact, people ought to buy the generic and save money. But this case is very different. Uh, here's an example of possible harm. You've got a kid with a high fever. You know, it gets high enough, it can get dangerous. Um, you can have uh, seizures. Your kid can have seizures. Uh, you know, once you start getting towards 103 or, or higher, it's cause for alarm. And um, ibuprofen, Advil, does a very good job of bringing down fever. Tylenol does a moderately good job uh, of that also. So I, I, uh, I went into uh, CVS just to check it out, and there it was. Children's ibuprofen sitting right next to something called, well, it doesn't matter what it was called, but it could, because it said homeopathic on it. And I'm thinking, well, this is wrong. Because, um, like, th this is blatantly <laughs> a scam here because, you know, people, they, they see natural, organic, drug-free, and then they say it, see it's right next to ibuprofen, and they go, oh, yeah, I'll, uh, I should get this stuff, it's safer. Well, it is because it's a bunch of water or a sugar pill. And we should probably, and you can elaborate on this, Josh, but we should just probably make clear that if something is homeopathic, it means that whatever the active ingredient is has been diluted to the nth time that it effectively is not there. You're getting water and maybe sugar. That's basically it. And and I, I don't really understand the logic in that, but it has something to do with... Uh, you know, the memory of the drug existing in the water or something, and the, the less of it there is, the more effective it's going to be against whatever condition you're trying to treat. Uh, it makes zero sense to me, Josh. I don't, I don't know why anybody would believe that, but, uh, I mean, you're the chemist, so, so what's going on there? Well, this idea first came about in 1796, and I don't know of a whole lot of medical 
procedures, drugs, or whatever that are still used uh, from, from 1796. Because bloodletting and whatever else they did to people that that didn't work. Like, you know, it's just not done anymore except for this. And I'll give you a little bit of background on how they do this. Um, it's, it's, well, trying to describe it logically is difficult because there is none. But here's the homeopathic theory that, that like cures like. So if I rub, have poison ivy on my face and I rub more poison ivy on my face, theoretically it should get better. But I guess they had the wisdom to know that rubbing poison ivy on your face is not a great idea. So instead what they do is they take poison ivy, or anything really, um, herbs, duck liver is a very popular choice. Uh, maybe if you're growing feathers and you want to get rid of them, I, I can't really say. So they take a tiny amount of stuff, and it doesn't really matter what it is, and they dissolve it in alcohol, and that's called a mother tincture which sounds like a nun to me, but that's just. And then they do what's called a, a series of serial dilutions. So they take 10, milligram, 10 milliliters out, they put it in another jar, and then they add 990 milliliters of water. So that's a hundredfold dilution, and that's called 1C. So if you do the math, oh, then they take that, 10, mil, 10 milliliters of that out, add it to another 990 milliliters of water, and that's 2C. So you've had two serial dilation, uh, dilations, my God, you think I was a OBGYN, uh, dilutions of um, a tiny amount of substance. And each time they do this, it goes down by a hundredfold. So if you get up to just 4C, if I can read my numbers right, it looks as though it's about, if you start with one milligram, it looks like about point, I don't know, seven or eight zeros, one milligram. In other words, nothing. And, um, but here's the crazy part. Like, um, one of the tenets of homeopathy is the more you dilute it, the stronger it gets, which is, which is just madness. Um, so then they keep going, and by the time you get to 9C, so you're talking about nine serial dilutions, it's, uh, what is it, it's, uh, it's so many zeros I can't even read it, but it, it's basically z almost nothing in there. But then they keep going to 12C, which is approximately where there's one molecule of the stuff left. 
So if you take that and divide it in half, by definition, one of the flasks is not going to have any of it at all. But then they keep going. So at, at 13C, there's nothing there. But since more dilution equals stronger, you, th you see 20 and 30C, which is, it's absolute nonsense. And I believe the uh, product I was talking about for teething relief compared to ibuprofen, it had between 5C and 9C of a few different things like chamomile. So chamomile at 9C is one bazillionth of a milligram. And um, it makes me wonder if it would be more effective if they threw more water in there. So this is, this is black magic. It's nothing more. It's just crazy. It's silly. And it goes against every law of chemistry and physics that you could ever imagine. But if, if you ask a homeopath how this works, uh, assuming you can get the straight jacket off, um, the, the bottom line is even though the drug is gone, it leaves an imprint on water. They call it the memory of water. And it's this water molecule, which has all these curative products, even though it was duck liver in the first place, will cure pain and gas and whatever the hell else is wrong with you. <laughs> So a final, a final comment, observation that you can respond to if you like. When it comes to uh, you know, a major chain like CVS or Walgreens or you know, whoever, it's strange to me that they would allow this because if you were to go to the pharmacy and you know, let's say you were diagnosed with COVID, you go in and you say, uh, yeah, my doctor recommended Paxlovid to treat my infection. The pharmacist wouldn't say, well, before you do that, let me tell you about ivermectin. You know, that just wouldn't happen. No, no, no pharmacist in their right mind would do that. And no company in their right mind with pharmacies in their stores would say, hey, let's talk about ivermectin, right? But on, on an issue like this, I, I don't know why, presumably because it's not as critical of an issue perhaps, or maybe it's just a double standard. They will sell you a homeopathic remedy instead of ibuprofen. I don't get it. What's, what do you think about that? My best guess is this is about money also. So uh, these companies that make this junk, well, it's junk, it's water, um, would not surprise me if, if they paid some kind of a, a fee to CVS. And this is just speculation, but nothing else makes sense to have their product placed next to a like, a supposedly like, um, likewise CVS product. Yeah. If there's another reason, like some kind of marketing nonsense, I don't get it. But it certainly doesn't belong there. And the um, 
the group that's going after them in court is called the Center for Inquiry. It's a nonprofit, much like ACSH, and they don't like the fact that you're selling absolutely useless, use, useless stuff next to a real medicine um, in, to, in order to trick people to think that they're similar or the same. And they've had a lot of luck going after Walmart and CVS, and, and I, I think they're going to win. So just amusingly, like a few weeks after I snapped a picture of a, a product called Camila, next sitting right next to ibuprofen, I went into a CVS, and I could not find a single homeopathic remedy next to a single drug. Which sounds is, like somebody sent them our article then. Yeah, I think. <laughs> well, that's good news. Uh, that's uh, that's you know some movement in the right direction. You know, maybe we can't undo the damage from the opioid prohibition, but we can get, <laughs> we can get homeopathic crap off off the shelves at drugstores. So that's a start, Josh. I'm I'm encouraged. Well, um, you know. It, in, in most cases, homeopathic garbage, I don't want to even call it remedy, is not going to hurt you because it's, it's, if it's in a solid form, it's sugar. If it's in a liquid form, it's water. So y you can drink all you want. You can go diving into it. It wouldn't make any difference. Um, the only trouble is that when it's used in place of a medicine, when the medicine is used. And there's one other instance Sometimes people use homeopathy and they use it wrong. So one of the uh, ingredients that's used is belladonna from nightshade. It's a, it's a pretty toxic, um, I think it's a neurotoxin. Don't quote me on that. And uh, sometimes they don't dilute it enough and there's actually, there can be a lethal dose of belladonna in there, and you're giving that to your kid. So that's not a great idea either. So the whole thing just stinks, and it reeks of corruption and money and, you know, taking advantage of the unsavvy American consumer when it comes to these things. Well, there you have it. That's why you need to read ACSH and then come listen to this podcast so you can know what's what's going on out there. If you want to get the stories that we've talked about on the show, just go to our website. It's acsh.org. There's a subscribe tab up at the top. Click on that, punch in your email address, and three times a week we'll send you the stories that we publish. And the ones you read the most are the ones we talk about here. So these stories were pretty popular this last week, Josh, and so here we are breaking them down. As always, I want to thank everybody for listening. Really appreciate uh, you lending us your ears for a half hour. Josh, as always, it's great to talk to you. I hope you don't end up in another Russian prison anytime soon. Uh, yeah, I'm working on it. <laughs> okay. All right, folks. We'll see you next time for episode 37.